Well, last week we talked about the Great Easter Invite. Maybe you remember that. At least that's what I called it. Didn't have any great names, so that's what I called it. So, so over the next few weeks, we're going to keep talking about this idea that we're going to invite people to come to Easter. And so uh, the Great Easter Invite, we're going to kind of go through it here very quickly, is first of all, this week I asked you to be praying, thinking about people that you're going to invite. And you're actually going to write down those 10 names, and you're going to write those down, and you're actually going to bring those to church, and we're going to actually pray over the different people that you want to invite to church. And so what I'm asking this week is there's the welcome card on the back of that is a place for prayer. And so what I'm asking is for you to take one of these home, and as you pray about it, I want you to start writing down the names. And I'm asking everyone to... Try to invite 10 people. And the idea is if you invite 10 people to come to church, one of them will probably come. So, so 10%. But if one person comes for all of our invites, it'd be, actually be pretty amazing to have that many more people on Easter Sunday morning. So, so you, each of you, if you don't have a card in your seat, there's cards on the back. There's more of these. Take one with you. And next week, bring it back with you. And we're going to actually, we're going to collect those. And throughout the week, myself and the staff and all of you, we're going to be praying for the different people on these cards. So that's what you're doing this week. You're taking a prayer card. You're going to write down your 10 names. And again, some of you will probably invite five. Then we have Eva, who's already invited 105. So we have all kinds of different people doing different things. But here's the cool thing on the back table are just these little cards and next week, you will actually have a video, a how-to video on how to invite someone to church. I mean, it's going to be really good, so you don't want to miss that video. But you have these cards, and you can take some this week. Um, take up to 10 cards. <laughs> I didn't get a ton of cards, but take these. And what an easy way. It literally just says you're invited to the Easter service at Lost Floors Church. Pretty simple way to invite people. So don't forget these cards. And so then the idea is we're going, to, we're going to invite people, and then we're going to pray for them, and then in a few weeks, you'll actually invite them again, just a reminder, say, hey, don't forget about the Easter service, and our prayers on Sunday morning is that we don't have enough seats out on the lawn on, on Easter, because so many people are coming, and so we are the church well, we should be sharing the love of Jesus. That's the whole purpose of this. And if you remember last week, when we started talking about the church, we talked about the foundation of the church. It goes all the way back to Matthew chapter 16, where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And then Jesus says, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock on this rock. I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And this idea of the church that Jesus mentions here, it's a word, ecclesia, it's a, it's a word that, that, that we don't understand today, but it's translated into the church, but it actually means a gathering or a movement. It's not a building, it's not a pastor, it's not anything, it's not a denomination, it's, it's a gathering of believers. It's, it's a movement, like a grassroots movement. In the very first church that we started looking at in Acts 2, it was, it was different than what we have today. It was powerful. It was life-changing. 
And over the next five weeks, we started last week, we're going to talk about and learn from this first church. And what made it so powerful? Well, the overriding thing is they were committed. What were they committed to? Last week, they were committed to grow spiritually, to grow in their faith. And then today, they were committed to have friendships and relationships with each other in the church. They were committed to pray. They were committed to be generous. They were committed to worship together. They were committed to be full of the joy and hope of Jesus. And so today, what we're looking at is what were they committed to? To have friendships and relationships inside the church. We call it fellowship today. They were committed to this fellowship to basically like each other. And that's a big order sometimes, <laughs> but that's what the first church was called to. I want to read to you from Acts chapter 2, and here's what it says. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to sharing in meals, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared in their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now when you just read through those few verses... Uh, Almost, I mean, the whole thing is filled with fellowship. I mean, you just look at, at, as you go through this, and they were committed to fellowship, to sharing in meals. The believers met together. They worshiped together. They met in homes, shared their meals, enjoyed the goodwill of all the people. That meant people outside the church, and each day, new people were joining them. More people were coming into their fellowship. Now, I'm not saying it's this church, but I've been part of churches that aren't like this. I've been part of churches that it would read more like, well, they shared meals together and they gossiped about other people in the church. I've heard that many a times. Believers met together and they complained about the church or what's going on in the church. The Lord added to their numbers, but the outsiders or the new people felt like outsiders. And that happens often. You see, the church has issues. It really does. We can't deny that. And I've been in lots of churches. I've been in church my whole life. I've been a pastor for over 15 years now. And there are always things going on in the church. One of the things that stands out to me over the years, the biggest complaint in the church, the thing that people fight the most about is music, which is, which is pretty amazing because I like music. But I've been in churches where, man, music becomes this hot button. And it's pretty funny when I go all the way back, um, we were living in Kansas and we were going to this church that was growing. It was a church that had like 100 people in it and it started growing and it was up to like three or 400 people. And so it's, it's like tripled, quadrupled in size. And they had to go from their sanctuary, which didn't hold everybody now, into the gym. And, and in the gym, they built this big stage, and they went from singing hymns, which we all know that the old-fashioned way of doing things was singing hymns. We had a hymnal. We had one person that would stand up and direct us, and that was all fine. But as, as we were changing into this, in this church, 
they started to change the music. And they, they didn't sing as many hymns, and they started singing different stuff, and they put a drummer on stage, which, whoa, you would have thought something really bad happened in the church. And then, then they got this worship pastor that he had a lot of energy, and he'd run around on the stage jumping up and down. And what was interesting is the original people in the church started to get really upset, and they were mad. But the new people that were coming were loving it. They, they were enjoying it. And guess what? Because of this new energy, more people were coming. But I will never forget, I don't even know his name, but I remember every Sunday morning when I would walk through the back door and come walking down the aisle, he would be sitting in the back and he wouldn't stand during any of the worship songs, but he would just put his fingers in his ears, just like this. And he would just glare at the stage the whole time. I mean, his heart was full of worship. You could tell just by the way he did that, but this anger in him. And he would put, and now there's a lot of people that left the church over this, but he refused to leave. He was going to make sure everyone knew how angry he was that things were changing. And in my last church I was at, we had music issues. We had people, they wanted to get rid of the, the music guy, and there was this big tension. And, and then we came here to interview. And when we came, we heard George Williamson was the worship pastor, and he was amazing. And, and afterwards, Lisa and I were talking to George about the music here, and we were kind of telling him, man, what's it like here? I know, you know, you're not as traditional as some of the others, and, uh, you know, do people complain? And I'll never forget this, and Lisa remembers even more than I do, and I'm not sure if it's exactly the words he said, but these words stuck with me. But George said, oh, we don't do that here. That's not who we are. And I love that statement. So do people complain? Do they gossip? Upset? No, we don't do that here. That's not who we are. I love that statement. And when Lisa and I heard that, we're like, I love this church. <laughs> I mean, what, what a place to be, right? I mean, but what a statement. And we're going to talk about that more, but, but really what we should be as a church is not people that sit with their ears plugged. We shouldn't be angry or upset. What we should be is what Josh and Natalie read to us earlier in Hebrews 10. It says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another. Encourage each other to love. Encourage each other to do good things. Encourage one another to show up on Sunday morning, to be part of what's happening. Encourage each other to show up to life groups. You see, we are called in the church to live in peace and unity. <laughs> the love of Jesus should bind us together. And we literally just sang this verse, but Jesus says in John 13, how are people going to identify the church? How are they going to know his followers? It says, so now I'm giving you a new command. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. When people are watching from the outside and looking in and they see a unified church that love each other, they're going to go, wow, that's different. <laughs> now, unfortunately, it's not always that way, because the church is made up of people. <laughs> and, and sometimes that can be messy. 
And so how we interact with people can create joy or it can create pain. And how we, how we deal or choose to handle conflict with people can cause bitterness or it can create peace. It, we literally can choose to encourage or discourage people. And the church is a messy place. Even the early church dealt with this. Paul writes about it in Galatians. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 5. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself, but if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. That's some pretty strong language from Paul because he saw it in the church. I've seen it in churches over the years, biting and devouring and gossiping and complaining. All that does is destroy from the inside out. It, you guys, you know my dad passed away a couple months ago and one of the things I learned from his service and just being there at the service and then being with all these people that came and, and all the comments from people is that the most meaning, meaningful times in life is when we are with other people. Those are the things you're going to remember. You're not going to necessarily remember. Now, there's some nice times when you're just by yourself. Don't, don't get me wrong. But the most meaningful times in life that you're going to remember at the end of your life is when you are with other people. When you have this unity with other people. And this week I heard a podcast and a guy was saying on there that we need to be careful who we surround ourselves with. That we need to surround ourselves with people that encourage us. People that cheer for us. People that believe in us. And then even people that are honest with us. That will hold us accountable. But as I was thinking about that and thinking that, that's great. You know, it's good to surround ourselves with people who are going to do that. But unfortunately, when we're in the church, we're in a church, we can't always choose who we're going to be surrounded with. We can't make that choice. But then I was thinking, but what we can do is we can choose to be the kind of person that we should be. And maybe we can't choose who we're hanging out with this afternoon and we're sitting next to in church, but we can choose who we are, Right? We can always say, you know what, I, I want to be a person that encourages others. I want to be a person that cheers for you, that believes in you. And I also want to be a person or a friend that holds people accountable. Now, we need to be careful with that. I'm going to just put a little asterisk next to that because you need, you need the privilege from the person to say, yeah, I want you to hold me accountable. If it's someone you don't know super well, be careful with that one, Okay. Hey, you can be a good friend in that, but we can choose to encourage. We can choose to cheer for people. We can choose to believe in people. This isn't saying that we're always going to be best friends with people. That's not what it's saying because it's impossible for us to be best friends with everyone, but we can love people even when we're not best friends. We can encourage people even when we're not <clears throat> super close to them. Even Jesus only had 12 followers. He had three of them that he was really close with. But we can still love everybody. <clears throat> Jesus says it like this, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. 
What, what, what a statement. Do to others as you'd have them do to you. If you just stop and think about that and think about just the idea of complaining about somebody, gossiping about somebody, being mean to somebody, and you think, wait a minute, is that how I want to be treated? That's literally what Jesus is saying here. <clears throat> and when we hear people complaining about somebody else, gossiping about other people, we don't do this very often, but there's one thing that, that I've always known should be right. When someone starts to tell me about somebody else and I'm thinking, this doesn't seem right, you can always say, have you told them this already? Have you talked to them? Because the Bible's pretty clear that if you've got an issue with somebody, you should go to them first. What good does it do talking to other people about this issue when you should go to them first? And we have the right in this church that if you hear negativity, if you hear gossip, if you hear people complaining, to say, oh, wait a minute, we don't do that here. That's not who we are. We were created to share this life with people. That's who we are. And in fact, we were designed to have relationships with other people. If you go back to Genesis, and I want to go to Genesis for a little while, in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 2, it says, then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. In other words, it's not good that he just has all the animals. It's not good that he's by himself. He needs a relationship with somebody else. And we all need people in our lives. We need people to love, and we need people that will love us back. And we need people to encourage, and we need people to encourage us. We need mentors. We need teachers, and we also need people that we can mentor, that we can teach. We need people to laugh with. We need people to cry with. And the church is people. That's who we are. We're not a building. We're not just a denomination or certainly not just a pastor. We are a gathering of people. And as I've already said, people can be a little tricky because we know they can hurt us. They can look down on us, they can lie to us, they can manipulate us, and the list goes on and on and on because we've all been victim of people. <laughs> but let's go back to when it was perfect. So let's go back to Genesis when it was perfect. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And you're going, why are you sharing that with us? They were both naked, and they felt no shame. That that's, doesn't seem like it should be even in the Bible, right? But the truth is, it's not about their, their physical nakedness. What this is really about is they felt no shame. They were completely open with God. They walked with God in the cool of the evening, and they were naked. They, they did their work all day long, and they were naked. They were with each other, but it had nothing to do with they didn't have clothes on. They were completely open with God and with each other. They knew everything about each other. They didn't have to hide themselves. They didn't have to cover anything up. But unfortunately, then we get to chapter 3 of Genesis. When we get to chapter 3 of Genesis, we are introduced to the serpent who comes to Eve. And the serpent says to Eve, hey, you should try this fruit on this tree. And Eve responds immediately, no, that's, I'm not supposed to eat that, that you can't have and and the serpent begins to deceive her and basically say well it looks like God's holding out on you what why would God be holding out on you he must know something is pretty special about this fruit on this tree 
And she begins for the first time to think, wait a minute, God is holding something out on me that I could have that's better? And for the first time in the history of mankind, she's like, hmm, there's a doubt about her relationship with the God that created her. And so she eats the fruit. She hands it to Adam, and Adam eats the fruit. And then they look at each other and they realize they're naked. For the first time, all of a sudden they go, wait a minute, we have to cover up. All of a sudden, shame has now entered the world. And, and then, following that, God shows up. And here's what it says in Genesis 3, 8 through 13. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden. hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Night after night, they walked in the garden with God. There was no issues. Because they'd never done anything wrong. They were completely open. They were, God knew them and they knew God and they knew each other. And then all of a sudden, the serpent deceives them. They sin, and all of a sudden, now they have something to cover up. All of a sudden, they're ashamed. All of a sudden, they, they don't want to reveal themselves to God, and so they hide. And then God wants to know what happened. <laughs> this is where it gets really good. The man replied, it was the woman. <laughs> it was the woman you gave me. He even blames God. It's the woman you gave me. Who gave me the fruit and I ate it? Wasn't my fault that I ate it. It's the woman's fault. This has been happening ever since, isn't it? It's the woman's fault. And then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? She said, The serpent deceived me, and that's why I ate it. I mean, you can see what's happening here. All of a sudden, they have shame. They're hiding, and God goes, What did you do? I didn't do it, they did it. Well, no, no, it wasn't me, it was them. I mean, this is pretty much standard, right, for humanity. And it all started right there. You see, when Satan deceived Adam and Eve, they became ashamed of, number one, themselves. Then they became ashamed to see God, and they hid from God. And then they turned on each other. You see, the fall made life more difficult, but it also made people become more difficult. And because of the fall, we still struggle with these relationships because we walk around with this, this shame of who we are and we, we struggle with ourselves, we struggle with other people, we struggle with our relationship with God. And because of this, there will always be difficult people, even in the church. And quite often when we get hurt, what do we do? We do what Adam and Eve do. We cover up, don't we? We, we build walls around ourselves. We, we leave churches where we get hurt, or we leave groups of people where we get hurt. We, we make sure we never go back there again. I, I read some interesting stuff this week about conflict in the church. The first thing that came up was the pastor's average 
time being in the ministry, not just at one church, but pastors' average time of being in the ministry. You can just imagine they go to college, they get their degree, and they go out into the church, and they go, whoa, these people are a mess. And they last four and a half years on average. Four and a half years is the average length of a pastor. So I'm doing pretty good, <laughs> I feel like. But, but man, four and a half years. And then I heard a story just not that long ago. And the problem is it was the same story I've heard over and over and over. This person just happened to be a pastor. But I've heard it from many, many people that are in the church they're asked, why don't you go to church? Oh, I used to go to church. I, I believe. I just don't go to church because I was hurt by the church. And, and this particular story was a man that was a pastor. Graduates from college, goes out, and he's a worship pastor. And, and he's loving what he's doing. And eight years later, he refuses to walk through the door of a church. Why? Because people hurt him. Over and over and over. And it's interesting, you go back to the foundation of the church, right? The Lord God asked, or I'm, I'm sorry, you go back to, to what, um, what God said to Eve. And Eve says, the serpent deceived me. <laughs> That's why I ate it. The serpent deceived me. You see, what the serpent did that day is he started dividing people from God. He started dividing people from people, because Satan is smart. Because if you want to stop something that's as powerful as the church, you create disunity. <laughs> and there was even division in the early church. Well, we already talked about Paul says, man, love each other. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. It, it's... It's almost sad, but when I talk about unity, when I think about unity, you know what I go back to? <laughs> I go back to my high school football team uh, because we had unity. And, and even today, we're over 30 years graduated, but, but over the last two or three years, first, we had our 30th class reunion, and we all got together, and there's a, a group of us that all played on the same football team together, and there's Two of them, maybe three of them that I keep in contact with through texting and we know about each other's families and we see each other from time to time. The rest of my class, I had 30 seniors, 30 plus seniors that were on our football team. I don't see them except maybe once a year or so. But when we get together in one room, you should feel the unity. We know each other. We have this one common bond. And then when my dad passed away, who was our football coach, Man, we go back and we're at his, his service and, and together afterwards and there's this unity. I'm not great friends with him. We have very little in common, most of us. But we have this, this unity, this, this bond. Because every great team, every great organization, every great school, every great church or business has unity. If it doesn't have unity, it doesn't work doesn't mean we're best friends with everybody because that's impossible <laughs> but the church more than any other organization on earth should be unified because we have the common bond of Jesus 
And we should be for each other. We should be encouraging each other. We should be loving each other. And the world should be looking in and going, wow, what do they have that I'm missing? Most disunity comes from the inside. Just like in the garden. <laughs> and you think about when Jesus said to Peter, upon this, I'm going to build, upon you, I'm going to build this church. And all the powers of hell will not conquer it. But unfortunately, there's disunity in the church among people that have destroyed many churches. The powers of hell can't defeat it, but man, we can do it ourselves. We, as Lost Fuller's Church, we should be committed to fellowship, to unity, to love. When I was in college playing football, a high school football experience, as I already said, was pretty good. I went to Mid-American Nazarene and playing. We didn't win many games. In fact, I think we won a total of five or six games in four years, which is not much fun. I hate losing. But you know what it did? It created disunity on our team. And by the time we were seniors, we had a new coach. There was a little bit more excitement with our team. And, and we were actually winning. While I was there, we never won a homecoming game. In fact, we hardly ever won at home. And, and so we we're playing in our senior year homecoming game. And we actually have a chance to win the game. It's tied 28-28. And we're down at the five-yard line with just a few seconds to go in the game. And I'll just brag, I threw the game-winning touchdown at the end of the homecoming game. And I threw it to my roommate, Glenn Shoup. He caught it, and just being the quarterback I was, I made sure he was double-covered and made it as hard as possible. And, and, and I didn't even know it, but we scored, and we had this huge celebration I mean, we, we just won our first home game. This is exciting. But I didn't know what was happening at the same time. And you see, there's this wide receiver who's also a friend of mine named Steve. And Steve was wide open in the corner in the end zone. I threw it to double-covered Glenn for the touchdown. Glenn scored the game-winning touchdown. Steve is mad. He doesn't celebrate with us. He's not jumping up and going, we won. He's kicking the ground, and he's mad. Why? Because he didn't score the touchdown. And I didn't even know this until Monday. We're watching the film. And we're watching that play. And we're all talking. We're all excited. And Coach had this little pointer that, that showed up on the screen. And he paused it. And he went out and he circled Steve. And he circled him. And he didn't go into a lot of detail. And I don't know exactly how he said it. But it sounded like this. He said, we don't do that here, Steve. That's not who we are. We don't do that. And how often in the church do we have Steve's <laughs> when together we should be celebrating the victory? We have the common bond of Jesus holding us together. Instead of looking for what's wrong, let's love. Let's encourage. Let us, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another. The early church had fellowship. They showed up. They hung out. And they encouraged. And this week, what I want us to do is, who can you encourage this week? What do you need to do this week to make sure you have fellowship with other believers? As we, 
work our way towards Easter and we talk about this first church. Each week we're going to talk about something different, but I don't want to forget (laughs) the things we've talked about. And I feel like this week is so vital to us as a church, to us being the church God's created us to be. I I just want to remind you, please, uh, on the back there's, there's these questions And as you walk out, you can grab those and you can take them and you can study. And I want you this week to really, truly, I want you to think about who can you encourage? Who can you have fellowship with? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for us as your people. I pray, Lord, that that we would use our freedom to love each other, to lift each other up. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a church that encourages, that motivates, that loves. Be with us as we go this week. Be with us as we think about new people to invite people that need you, Lord. Be with us as we prepare to celebrate your death and your resurrection that gives us life. And we just pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Please don't forget your prayer card, your welcome, and your uh, invite cards. Thank you.